0: Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Washington State Senator and author Pramila Jayapal. Hello, and thanks for joining me today. Hi, March. It's so great to be here. And you're right. It is raining today. (laughs) Big surprise in the Pacific Northwest.
1: Well, it's been such a beautiful week that, you know, I think we all got lulled into thinking maybe that was going to be the case.
0: Well, yeah, although I have a teenager spending a couple of days with my family, and he was so thrilled to see the rain. Because he grew up here, he loves the forest, and last summer he really was stressed by the forest starting to die around us with something like 90 days of no rain in a row. Yeah,
1: it's really true. We're so fortunate to have this incredibly green, beautiful state, and it takes rain to make that happen.
0: Last summer, it hit me, no one waters the forest. That's right. Like, I can water my garden, but who waters the forest? Only Mother Nature, so yeah. And now we're going to dive into today's show. Pramila, you are actually my first guest author to also be an elected political official. And while I'm eager to explore your book, Pilgrimage, One Woman's Return to a Changing India, First, I would love it if you could take a moment to ground us in the role that you play down in Olympia. Give us a sense of that side of yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm the state senator from the 37th legislative district, which basically is most of South Seattle plus Skyway and downtown Renton. And Mm -hmm. I have been serving there for the last two years. And it has been a, a fabulous opportunity to represent the people and to bring diverse voices To the table in a very different way. I was an activist for 25 years before that. Mm -hmm. And um, this, I feel like, is an extension of how we use activism to build a broader and more representative democracy.
0: Right, right, right. Well, I mean, if we think back to the founding fathers, right, you know, the beginning of the nation. It was people looking around and saying, "Okay, those people who were born into positions of influence and power, they are not handling it well." And so action was taken. And you know, I, I was talking to—I can't remember who it was today—and I said, "You know, the whole oh, it was it was the young man who's staying at our house." I said, "The whole point of having limited terms—that you ha- you're only elected for two, four, six years." is that the country was founded on the belief that you cannot trust people in positions of power to be perfect, and you must watch them, and you must keep track of them, and have an option to not elect them back if they're doing bad things. That's right. So activism in politics, it's like that's as American as you can get. Absolutely. And I
1: represent the most racially and economically diverse district in the state, and Mm -hmm. I am also the only woman of color in the state senate, and really? So Yes. Oh. People are shocked to know that, but it is true. Wow. Oh, and you're
0: right, because in the House of Representatives, we do have some... There are some
1: women of color and some people of color right. in the House, but not in the Senate. Wow. And I'm also the first South Asian American ever to be elected to the Washington State Legislature. So I bring a lot of different pieces to the work, but the right. most important one is... Um, that I'm an, a movement elected. I'm somebody who comes from the movement into politics mm-hmm. because I believe we really need to change the way that our government works and represents people, and I feel like I can do a, do that effectively.
0: Right, right, absolutely. And it is true what you were saying when you were mentioning where the 7th. Se-
1: yes, I would be representing the 7th Congressional District in Washington, D.C., in the U.S. House of Representatives. Exactly. Yeah. So
0: for Vashonites, what we're talking about is Jim McDermott is retiring
1: after 27 years. Actually, yeah. it'd be 28 by the time he steps down
0: now as a representative in Washington, D.C., is it a two year term? It is. It's a two year term in the House
1: of Representatives. So and Jim,
0: was he ever contested during those 28 years?
1: He's had some opposition, but never anything strong. Never. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he's always won by 65, 70 80 mm-hmm. percent at different times 90 okay. percent um, of the vote uh, at some times so he's always he's always been a very strong um you know voice I think that people mm-hmm. have appreciated in and the trusted. district and trusted yeah. in the district and he was strong against the war as i have been we have we mm-hmm. share a lot of common um you know policies and stances um and some of course we differ but
0: Do you know what he – did he have any role in the um, fast-track TPP issue?
1: Well, he actually – our congressional delegation has pretty much been pro-free trade for Mm -hmm. some time. Um, This year, I believe that Jim and Adam Smith and maybe Denny Heck – voted against the TPA. Um, and I believe it might have been one of the first times that that's happened. And TPA is? It, that is the Trade Promotion Authority, which mm-hmm. was the Fast Track mm-hmm, trade mm-hmm, agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, so Fast Track is a nickname. Yeah, Fast Track is what most people would call it, which basically says you don't have to go through the the approval process for Congress. It, right. And it, it
0: gave power yeah. to the president to Correct. do negotiating on, on behalf of the United States without... Congressional engagement. That's right. Which means, if I understand correctly, when TPP is actually brought this hidden thing that no one gets to take pictures of and it's all, you know, in back rooms and all that, when that's brought forward, it's sort of going to be presented to the United States Congress as a no, you cannot change it, take it or leave it option.
1: Well, the TPP will be a vote that Congress is able to take.
0: and But they can't make amendments <clears throat> to that's right. it, right?
1: And, you know, you may have heard about the Panama trade agreements. They've been in mm-hmm. the news a lot lately. I mean, a lot of those trade agreements were done in secret, behind mm-hmm. closed doors, only with corporations at the table and with very fast track authority, essentially. How odd that it would
0: work out badly. <laughs>
1: Sorry. Yeah, I always, I always <laughs> say, you know, it's not that um, we should be necessarily against fair trade. Mm-hmm. We understand that we live in a global economy. We understand stand that we are a state that does a lot of trade with the rest of the world. Right. But it can't be free trade. When, uh, you know, without people that are actually being affected by the decisions that are being made, specifically workers, and if you look at the way these trade agreements have been negotiated, Mm -hmm. they rarely have workers' voices at the table. The unions are not at the table. It is big corporations, and the trade agreements end up benefiting and profiting those big corporations like the big pharmaceutical companies that are really getting the best right. benefit from the TPP and the TPA. And so that is what we need to stop. We need to make sure that if we're negotiating trade agreements, mm-hmm. that a they have to be fair trade agreements and mm-hmm. that they have to have the voices of workers, not just American workers, by the way, also, you know, workers around the world and really trying to build global worker solidarity um, as a part of the trade agreements.
0: It's also not just workers that don't have a voice at the table, though. Um, My understanding also is consumers slash citizens don't have any voices. And if I understand correctly, the sovereignty of our nation actually is at risk because if our nation agrees to TPP as it is expected to be written, it would give international, non-American-based corporations, we would be giving them the right to sue us if we decided that we didn't like what they wanted to sell to us because it was a food product that was produced with really dangerous chemicals. Right. You know, if we were to say our best decisions on what we think is appropriate for the planetary health and human health is blank, and they say, well, we don't care, we're going to do it this way, and you have to buy it from us anyways. Yeah,
1: no, that's absolutely right. And, you know, kind of related to that, there's also a number of provisions that would affect our public lands, our public goods, our public assets, and actually privatize them in different ways, monetize them. So everything from water to providing access for coal trains and oil trains to run through the state of Washington right. based on our trade agreements. So there's a lot at stake with these trade agreements. And right. you're absolutely right. It's not just about the workers. It's about everybody. Well, it's, about is, it, it, it is. American it's about disenfranchising people. And it's about turning over power for right. assets that belong to the public that are controlled by the public. So for example, to, the big
0: to take a local one, the methanol plant that ju- there's just three stopped. of them, but one yeah, of them was just stopped in Tacoma. If TP was already on the plate, this an example, and I'm not saying this is hundred percent what would happen, but if people protested and the government said, We're gonna honor the protest a little bit, that other international company could come in and say, Well, if you actually blow off what we want to do here, We're gonna sue you. And then you have the government officials saying to the people, Look, we're under threat from these people in another country, so we have to let them do this because if we don't, they can legitimately sue us and we lose money. Right now we're all celebrating that the plant was stopped. Imagine being in a situation where our ability to control our own land and our resources. Exactly.
1: And so you remember a lot of people remember that the WTO was here, we had these huge protests. 1999. And, you know, I would say that a lot of what we were fighting then Mm -hmm. was the corporatization of the commons. Mm -hmm. So, common goods, common spaces, common agreements being taken over by corporations Mm -hmm. that um, are not looking out necessarily for the best interests of the people, particularly those that are multinational corporations whose only Um, Let's just
0: take the word not necessarily completely out. They are not looking out. I mean, Pepsi, when it went into, I believe it was either Africa or India, and just just sucked up all the water, did what they wanted, destroyed the environment, walked out. That is what corporations do. Well, you you know what's
1: interesting is um, there's a book actually that talks about this. When corporations first started to come into being, they actually had as part of their charter the requirement that they had to have a public good, mm-hmm. that they had to be able to show public benefit and public good, nice. and that is just not the case anymore. That's no. not in the charter. It's not how corporations are started. It's not how they're evaluated. Their only motive is for profit for their shareholders. Right. And so, you know, as even a legal obligation, head, isn't that's it? Right. Like mm-hmm. if
0: they are making a decision and they say this is better for the next seven generations of humans on the planet. But it's going to make less money for the shareholder, and this will make more money over the next five years for shareholders like they are legally obligated to choose that option, and if they don't, they can be sued. yes or I think there's
1: attempts now, and you see it in the environmental movement, for example, to quantify the benefits of say saving saving the environment or right. having environmentally friendly um, policies but but you're right that that is it's seen as only a monetary um, right. gain. Right. That's really all it's evaluated yeah. for. And
0: the people who understand TPP are screaming at the top of their lungs and educating as fast as they can. And the people who are clueless about it are going to get deluged at some point with a whole bunch of advertising, probably, or it'll just be quietly you know, slipped through Congress. It's like, think about what you were saying earlier about privatizing resources. Mm-hmm. So what happened in South Africa? They went from having water supplied to the people by the government, and maybe it wasn't perfect, you had to maybe walk a little bit of a distance, but when, when a corporation came in and said, let's privatize this, this will make it better, what they're saying is, I'm going to find a way to make profit off of this. The government's not trying to make profit. It's just trying to supply water to the people. And what they did is they came in, they built a lot more water access points, but then they started charging these people money for the water. They couldn't afford it. And when they couldn't afford it, they shut it down. So now they have a bunch of turned-off water faucets all over the place, and people who are in a worse state than they were before. We cannot privatize the right. commons.
1: Well, that's exactly right. And when you look at the attacks on government in this country, and the attempts to make government seem as if it's inefficient, and it doesn't serve the people, and mm-hmm. it costs too much money, and these are bureaucrats who are getting paid too much, and, you know, but the reality is... That the best way to privatize is to say that government doesn't work, that government isn't important. And so we see in the state legislature and and in Congress, we see a lot of attempts to privatize public jobs, you Mm -hmm. know, public – the provision of public services, whether it's it's telecommunications or whether it's public utilities or whether it's – you know, just contract labor that right. gets contracted out. The ferries. Out. Supposedly, the, ferries the first
0: the- thing that this, there's some guy who's new to a position of leadership, and the first thing he said at like the first meeting he went to was, I'm going to look into privatizing the ferry system. Right. That well, will and only there's make the, things worse because right. now mean, we have there's to pay so for many, profit.
1: Right. There's so many assumptions that underlie that, I think, that we have to pull apart mm-hmm. and really help people to understand that. While you might be frustrated that government is not always, you know, efficient or seems bureaucratic, some of those things may be true, but the private sector is also extremely inefficient. And so there are a lot of studies that show that, you know, that contracting out to private contractors is actually more expensive and has less transparency and accountability, at least when government is doing something you have the right as a citizen mm-hmm. to get information back about what government is doing how they are spending your taxpayer dollars when things are contracted out not only is it does it have tremendous inefficiency not only do you not get that information back about mm-hmm. you know and have the accountability But you also know that when something is private, it means it is not being done for the benefit of the broadest community. And so a lot of the folks who are at the bottom of the scale, whether it's in terms of getting water or food supplies or whatever it is, if they're not profitable, they're going to be dropped. And that's the same thing if you look at public lands, you know, and the attempts to sort of we've cut our support for our public parks and our public lands. Right. And now there's talk about privatizing some yep, of those public I've been hearing lands. about that too. And when you do that, it means you only make it available to the people that have money and the people that don't have money don't have access. So we perpetuate inequity in a way that government is supposed to prevent.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, there's So if I, rough number, but my impression is that like the administrative costs of Medicare is something like 3%. And the administrative costs of privatized insurance is usually around 30%. Yeah. So, okay, hello, there's a really yeah. good example right yeah, there. Exactly. And yet what do we hear? 30%, 3%. Right. Hmm, I right. wonder which is right. costing and, the consumer more at, in the end.
1: Look at the cost of prescription drugs. The Medicare program is not allowed to directly negotiate with prescription drug manufacturers. So because of that, Prices for seniors have gone. You know, well, actually, they have gone up for everybody. But right. we've seen these huge rising costs for seniors because there's no controls over what a private company, pharmaceutical company, charges for those drugs. Some people, I just talked to somebody yesterday whose his wife has a rare disease, thirty thousand dollars a month for their mm-hmm. treatment. Yeah. So you know, we are bankrupting people. And then what happens? But, is but that's the United- rare
0: situation. Even worse is the millions of people who maybe went from $100 a month to six hundred dollars a month, correct? Because a couple—I mean, everyone will say, "Oh, well, that's just a weird disease." But you know, no, what? no, There's no, a bunch it's of people happening to who are everybody. jumping Absolutely. everywhere, everywhere, just yeah. for
1: your regular, everyday—you know—things that you need. And heaven forbid and, you be diabetic. Yes, and you know, these private companies don't mm-hmm. have any requirement to stay in it for the long term. If it's not profitable, they get right. out. So that's what just happened with United Healthcare. United Healthcare has now gotten out. They have just—you can go online and read about it—but they've now decided. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be a part of the Obamacare, but the Affordable Care Act. So they've so. now, but they're one of our largest largest insurers, mm. and so all of a sudden they're pulling out, which mm-hmm. is going to create a big gap in the in the market. So you know, I think these are all the ways in which um, government is really government was set up to provide yeah. for people who needed it the most, and it's not set up for profit. Mm. It's set up to make sure that we are providing equity for everybody whether it's in healthcare transportation infrastructure jobs all of those things well
0: i'm not even i mean i'm not even sure that government was set up to actually quote provide for the people who needed it the most my impression is if we really go back to the roots that government is how we, as a united people, recognize that there are certain shared resources that all of us benefit. from. That's a much from. better
1: way to say it. Yes, and because we need transportation com- infrastructure, for example, yeah, you want roads provides for, for everybody. Yeah, you know. Um, so you're absolutely right. It's just that within the context of that, I see government as being the one entity. That will make sure that regardless of what you pay, regardless of mm-hmm. what you earn, regardless of you know where you live, maybe you live in a rural area, but you get a post office. Right? right? FedEx right. does right. not have to provide service to people in rural areas. You know, if it's not right. making if you're a profit, too far for them, out, exactly. Right. Whereas the postal service, one of the most trusted institutions in right. our country, does go into every community yep. and make sure that every community has access. to Well, that's that like service. schools.
0: You can live anywhere you want in the United States of America, and they will find you and ship your kid to a nearby school, no matter how far out it is. right. Right. Exactly. So, okay, well, obviously, (laughs) we could have a juicy nine-hour-long conversation here, and I want to make sure we don't miss um, a couple things that we wrote down in our pre-notes that we want to make sure to cover. But first, I'm going to go ahead and... Remind those of us who have just joined us that you are listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. My name is March Twisdale. I am the producer and host. And today I'm talking with Washington State Senator and author Pramila Jayapal. So she is currently a senator in the state of Washington. She wrote a book titled It's a Memoir. Slash, what else did you describe it as?
1: A Commentary on Societal Development Issues.
0: Exactly. And the title is Pilgrimage, One Woman's Return to a Changing India. Pramila Jayapal was born in India, left around the age of five, arrived in America around the age of 16. And in 1995, I believe, you went back to India mm-hmm. for a couple
1: years? Two years.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. And um, so... You are also the former executive director of one of the largest immigrant advocacy organizations in the country, One America. That's right. All right. Okie doke. However, this show, folks, is here for a very specific reason, and that is because we have underwriters, people who not only volunteer time, hours, wisdom, and skill, but also financially, including Northwest School of Animal Massage. N-W-S-A-M has something for every animal lover, workshops, professional courses, and blended learning options that allow flexibility as students learn large and small animal massage for professional certification or to take special care of their beloved pets. You can get more information about this at NWSAM.com. And also, one of my favorite people on the island... Amiad and Associates Real Estate also provides a great deal of support to VOV. Looking for a green realtor, Emma Amiad is a certified eco broker with over 25 years experience selling real estate on Vashon Island. And she is really awesome. If you are looking for a house on the island call her up. So back to our interview. And let's see, Pramila, I want to dive into now writing, which Mm -hmm. has been a lifelong passion for you. Did that coalesce or be, is that a part of the story you were going to tell about how you (laughs) changed your majors in college? Yeah,
1: yeah. well, I, um, so I'm an immigrant from India, as you said, and I came to the United States when I was 16 years old by myself. My parents took all the money they had, which was about $5,000, and they used it to send me here for an education. They really believed this was the place I was going to get the best education. So I don't know how many people we have out there who have Indian parents, Mm -hmm. but um, my Indian father had three professions that would have been okay for his daughter to pursue. (laughs) Doctor, a lawyer, or a business person or engineer. That was sort of, you could do either one of those. And so, when I came to the United States, I was supposed to be an economics major, and I mm-hmm. went to Georgetown University undergraduate. And we didn't have much money at all in our family, so I was allowed one phone call home a year. Wow, my,
0: one phone call, one phone a call, a call year. home a year.
1: And my father. So I used my sophomore year. I used my one phone call home a year, and we didn't have Skype. You know, this was <laughs> this was back, back in, in the eighties, right? <laughs> so I'm going to date myself here, but it was the early eighties. And so we just had one of those hall phones with a you know cord on the bottom. and yeah. a, So I used the hall phone to call my father and tell him. And you would have been about
0: 17 and a half? I was
1: 17, yep. To call my father and tell him that I was going to be an English literature major <laughs> instead of an economics major. And then I held the phone away from my ear a couple of feet as he screamed at me and said, I did not send you to the United States to learn how to speak English. You already know how to speak English. <laughs> And so I had to (laughs) promise my poor father because, of course, you know, as a parent, Uh you just want your child to have financial stability and have things Mm -hmm. that you maybe didn't have. And so for him, that well, meant... let's be honest. There's a bunch
0: of um, American <laughs> lit or English lit majors out there that are not doing anything that has to do with English lit, right? correct? Okay. Exactly, yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So I told him, listen, I just think that writing and reading um, and speaking are just so important to anything I do. Mm-hmm. And I promise you, I will get the same job with an econ- with an English degree that I would have gotten with an economics degree and that is why i actually went to wall street after i was after i graduated from college worked for 2 years on wall street it drove me to social justice for the rest of my life <laughs> But it actually did teach me a lot about finances. I'm incredibly good with numbers. It helped me when I was starting a nonprofit organization. Um, You know, I grew One America started after 9-11 and grew it to be the largest immigrant advocacy organization in the state. I'm very, very good with numbers and spreadsheets all Mm -hmm. from that experience. But my poor father, you know, had to sort of deal with that, with Mm -hmm. that, uh, with that change. But yes, writing has always been incredibly important to me. And um, I've always written for myself and then publishing that book was the first time I'd, I had written a book. Mm-hmm. Um, but since then have also continued to write. I write for The Nation. Mm-hmm. I've written for Reuters. I um, have written for a number of different publications. Um, I'm, I am actually have a book contract to work on my second book. Um, right. Do you have a working title? Well, I have changed the... I, it's from New Press. My contract is from New Press right. and I have a fabulous editor. And the original title was um i for, i'm forgetting now exactly what the it was on immigration and the changing demographics of mm-hmm. of, of america press two for english was the working title oh so, that's um, so cool. yeah oh, right so that totally. was that press was sort of that english. was sort of the working title but as it turned mm. out i was supposed to have finished that book last year uh-huh. and in the midst of that i you know, did a lot of other things and decided to run for Congress. And so now the book is supposed to be about the transition from activism to elected office. Oh, and so perfect. Yeah, Yay. so that is, and I don't have a working title for it yet, but my editor is wonderful and says mm-hmm. that whenever I'm going to be, you know, whenever I'm ready, he's ready to publish it. So I, I need to... Quickly get on it once I once I get done with this campaign. <laughs>
0: yeah, it is amazing how I mean one of the things there are there are sort of um, three types of writers. I guess we could come up with a fun category: the people who write and will never in their entire life actually submit for publication. They just yeah. write, and then there are the people who write on the other end who like literally write for a living every day. You know, they're in their office and they're like clockwork and they're successful as a career writer. Right. <laughs> there's those of us who are doing like lots of things with our life and we're trying to squeeze books in between. And I got to tell you, my novel, it's like it spends more time on the back burner because I'm like, well, my kid's doing this or, well, that's happening. Right. You know, it keeps getting shoved back. Well, that's what's so hard about writing.
1: I mean, I think that that's what's beautiful about writing and Mm -hmm. it's also what's hard about writing Um, It does take a a lot of discipline. It does take Mm -hmm. time. It takes clearing your mind Mm -hmm. um, of things, at least to write a novel, I think, or to write. Now, I use writing for social change. It's an important usage of it, and it's allowed me to process a lot of what I see Mm -hmm. and hear around me, and then to put it down in a way that maybe speaks to people's hearts as well as their heads and to transcend some of the immediacy of what may happen in a moment, but to go to the bigger picture of what we're really all fighting for together.
0: You know, it's really interesting what you say, and all of our listeners out there who write are probably gonna be they're nodding their heads. They completely get it. For those of you who don't write, you know, the whole right brain, left brain thing, you know, the brain works very differently. I've spent the last 11 months being very heavily involved in political issues. Mm -hmm. And in particular, basically, May of last year, I just called up a friend and said, hey, and I can't remember why. Mm -hmm. I cannot remember why. But it was um, maybe it was early June. And I called up my friend and said, there's this guy... And he just announced he's going to run for you know the presidency. And um, his name's Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and we have the festival coming up in July. We have our Strawberry Festival. And I said, I can organize in advance and get everything pulled together to have a booth at the festival so people can learn about this guy. But... I have another booth I'm responsible for on the weekend of the festival, and I can't actually man it so if you can take on the weekend, I'll do all the preparatory work mm-hmm. so he Michael shook and I decided to do that together and since then it's been an, you know an unending fabulous explosion of political yeah. revolutionary yeah. evolutionary Absolutely. stuff right but you know when my brain is doing that, I cannot relax into the generative imaginative right. creation of my you know, no. fictional novel. No, those that's two right. brains do not live in the same place.
1: And and it's not that one doesn't draw from the other. So when you do ultimately sit down, you know, y- you will draw a lot from that. So they, it's not that they operate completely separately, right. or they don't inform each other. But I kind of think of it as, uh, you know, you need to sort of have a bit of a tabula rasa mm-hmm. in order to start to write. And, and well, so depending that is on the, what you're writing, because I can write. Political um, commentary. Exactly. But, but not, that I can do. <laughs> yes, but not necessarily, you know, short pieces, obviously. I mean, I, I get a lot of fuel for that. Yeah. But I remember after my book came out, I had the mm-hmm. incredible opportunity to go to Hedgebrook, which is a women <gasps> writers retreat on... On Whidbey. And I'm actually on the creative advisory. I was on the board for years and I'm on the creative advisory council. Beautiful. And and, um, I got out to Whidbey. It was a beautiful sunny day. I took the ferry. I had just gotten the manuscript. So so the book was done and I got out there and I've always wanted to write short stories. And Mm -hmm. I've never actually really written short stories. And after a couple of days out there by myself Mm -hmm. with nature, with the water, long walks on the beach... I sat down and I wrote my first short story all in one go. Mm -hmm. It just came out of me. I had no idea where it came from. It just emerged on paper, almost completely finished. Yeah, it went on to win, uh, you know, an honorable mention in some magazine. Um, Ursula Gwynn, who became a mentor to me later. Wow. um, read it and was just blown away by oh, it. And so you. there's just these things that happen sometimes mm-hmm. but I I realized that that story did come from all these other things I had been doing right, right. on my activist side. I, there's just no way I would have been able to write it and get into the rhythm of what yep. the story needed to be. Yeah, to I have to time. be
0: relaxed. So anytime my kid I have two teenagers, 17 and a half and 14 and a half. And anytime something goes wonky as it is meant to do. Yeah. I've gotten to the point where I realized this is an, a very valuable right. thing. It's right. important for them to go wonky and go, oh, that's what happens over yes. there, you know? Right, right. But for the mother, of course, yeah. it's a little anxiety-causing. And yeah. instantly, my brain goes, Ree! And I go, okay, <laughs> novel's on the back for about six weeks till I make it through this one. Yes. You know, but... Yeah. Um, so, uh, you... Are very, very, very excited about this book. This book has some really nice chapter titles, and you. I would want to go through a couple that were really exciting. So number seven is Whose Choice is Development? <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what you're trying to bring up with that chapter.
1: Well, that chapter is about a very special part of India called Ladakh. And mm-hmm. Ladakh was closed. It's up in northern India. It's in the mountains. Um, the capital city of Leh is at 12,000 feet. Got it. And I spent a month there, maybe six weeks there, And for many, many, many centuries, actually, Mm Ladakh was completely closed off. There was no way to get to it Mm -hmm. except by one road. And it was very far and very difficult to get there. Um, And then it slowly started to open up in the 70s, I believe. Um, It became a strategic army outpost. And Uh. so there was an airfield that was built. and. Uh, the roads started to be built and that more tourism started to come in mm-hmm. and the ladakhi people were a very self-sufficient community, right? right? You know, they had to be right. They couldn't yeah. get anything from anywhere else. So they had this amazing way of existing in this very barren land because mm-hmm. of 12,000 feet, there's not a lot you can grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, when it opened up, it started to change everything. Right. And the culture started to change and, Um, there was really this sort of uh, push to um, both develop it and then another push, mostly from Westerners, to preserve it. Mm. And people in Ladakh were really torn between Mm -hmm. these two things because on the one hand, they wanted certain pieces of development. On the Mm -hmm. other hand, they wanted to preserve some of their parts of culture and so it was um it was just a fabulous opportunity to really look at the complexity of what happens Mm. when a community opens up whose choice is development you know what if people and and there was you know there was a one of i still remember one of the things that somebody said one of the tribal chair people said is um you know, you you people you're talking about Westerners. You come in and you tell us to wear our traditional clothes and eat our traditional food, but you're flying on jets and going back to countries that where where you have a lot more development. So really, a lot of complexity mm-hmm. to what does it mean to preserve a culture? What does it mean to allow a people to develop? And how do you do that while respecting both the history? and the current moment. So that's what that chapter explores.
0: I was just interviewing another author, well, author, poet, filmmaker, um, Stephen Silla. And one of the things that he does, he, I believe it's a nonprofit. Uh, it's about the concept of uh, journalism matters, but I can't remember right now. He's got a better title for it. And um, they they have come up with sort of some core tenets yeah. Of how journalism can improve. And again, I won't get it exactly correct, but one of them is not about me without me. Right. So the idea of, you know, the person who walks into a town, they look around, they go home and they write about it in their own viewpoint. Yeah. And right. and his idea would be, you know, it's not good journalism unless you actually let the people who are there contribute at story. least fifty yeah. percent to what yeah. you're actually saying. Right. It needs to be coming from them. Right. And and There's a movie out there, you may have seen it, and it's about a region in the high mountains Mm -hmm. of India Mm -hmm. or a country next to India, one or Mm -hmm. the other. And what has happened is people used to just live there forever. Everything was pristine and clean. All Mm -hmm. the water was perfectly clean, Mm -hmm. glacial melt, blah, blah, blah. And um, the people who still are there have a very simple joyful, agrarian culture. There's nothing really horrible going on. You know, it's very, very sustainable. And those cultures usually have to be fairly peaceful because if you're murdering each other, you can't sustain yourself, right? Right. And what's happened is the, right now at this point, the adults, the parent adults, like Mm -hmm. in their 30s and 40s, have left, Mm -hmm. taken their children down to these government-created from outside of Mm -hmm. the region schools Uh where the children are being taught, I believe Christianity. Uh They're being educated in American type Uh of ideology or whatever. And something like only like two out of 10 of those children will actually graduate. And then they go into Bangladesh or other deep parts. Most of them end up being street people because they don't make it. And the, you know, 20 percent that do make it into yeah. jobs. And the thing is that they can't even go home to where grandma and grandpa are anymore because right. they've lost all they've those lost skills. All of that. No, so the, y- the
1: book explores a lot <sighs> of those issues and it kind of runs as a theme throughout throughout the whole book. And and I'm very conscious as the author and as an Indian mm-hmm. um, of, you know, sort of this this love hate relationship yeah. um that that exists too but you know india is an incredibly special place i i have deep love for it my parents mm-hmm. still live there my son was born there um and i believe that it has such a rich history and culture mm-hmm. and everything that is there and you you go back to the mogul time and you go mm-hmm. back to some of the civilizations that were there it is remarkable oh yeah and, you know a lot of people go to India and all they see is the poverty and um it always is it, there's two kinds of people I find with India people that love it or hate it there's not a lot of people mm-hmm. in between um because it is not the easiest place in the world to be but I think the book really, uh, I hope that what people get out of it is is just what an amazing country it is, how much it has taught the rest of the world, and how much that ancient history and civilization and culture um, and the ways in which societies existed with tremendous happiness and tremendous right. prosperity for all people, um, there's a lot to learn from that.
0: I think one of the messages that a lot of people have taken away, specifically from the culture in India, is... Um, you see it all the time. It's that ability to be joyful in the moment,
1: yeah, that's right. there's a there's a sense of presence, and I explore spirituality in there quite a bit as well. Um, but there is there is a sense of the present, a sense of being completely there and like when it uh, starts
0: raining and those women just like get all excited and one of them whips out a, a like a tambourine type of drum out of nowhere and playing, they, just, they just start all start, start sing, playing
1: yeah. and singing the colors um our car broke down in the middle of some like you know very deserted road and within 10 minutes there were masses of people pushing the car mm-hmm. down the road yeah. um you know the the way in which everybody invites you to have tea you you are connected with each other in a way that we in the United States and in the western world have started to disconnect. And mm-hmm. so th- I know when I got back after living for two two years in Villages, right. it was such a strange transition back to go to a gas station. You know, basically to go an entire day and never have to talk to a single person because right. you can pump your gas and you can stick your credit card in. You never have to talk to anybody. You can go to the store. You go to automatic checkout. You go right. to the bank. You never talk to a person. There's so much that prevents us from talking to each other here Um these days, and well, now
0: of course that would be in I think broader scale society. I mean, it's true. I can go into Seattle and spend the whole day, and I and no one will smile at me. No yeah. one will
1: catch my eye unless they're trying to sell me something.
0: But yeah, and it is yeah exactly. Well, I, I think Vashon. that's why
1: people move out here because <laughs> I think so. because they do want that sense of connectedness. I know it's you know if I win from my congressional seat, my husband is already saying, "Let's move to Vashon. Let's oh, move to Vashon. Oh my gosh! Because that would be there is this there is this sense of you know, deep longing for Mm -hmm. human connection. Mm -hmm. And the book explores a lot of those issues.
0: Yeah, no, I'm very... Uh, clear oftentimes, I'll mention even on this show, that, yeah, so we got some trees and some hills and there's some water out there. Yippee, yippee. You got that all over in this region. What's really different about Vashon is absolutely um, the people. Yeah. you know, And it's not even that they're supreme or better than people even on the other side of the water, I guess. Really, it's the people plus slash the island aspect. And once you know that you have uh, community boundaries that are recognizable— um it just changes, it changes everything. everything yeah and yeah. and
1: just having come from the meet and greet that we did at the library right. You know where we had over forty people there on a on a Sunday morning, um, talking for two hours about what was important to them and what's important to our community and what's important to America. It was really fabulous, and I'm very grateful to the people of Vashon for all the years of welcome. Actually, I used to bike out here quite a bit um, when I was biking. I haven't been doing much of that, but I, I just love biking around here. It is gorgeous, but it is also that sense of you know deep community, small businesses. Um, people run, locally produced. I mean, all of those things that I think we really value as a society.
0: And you don't know it until you've actually experienced it. Right. I mean, you really, you can't, you just can't, I mean, when you're surrounded by urban sprawl and where there's, you know, it's just, you gotta live it to experience yeah. it. Yeah. Just like India, I have um, all sorts of images in my mind and know lots of people who have gone and I almost have this very intentional lack of opinion about India. I don't want to form any opinions. I would maybe at one point go and I want to be sort of open-minded yeah. and blank slate yeah. about it rather yeah. than you know, presuming this, that, or the other. I don't want my...
1: Yeah. Well it you know, it is it is a challenging place, mm-hmm. but it does not allow you to disengage from the world.
0: Well you were talking the the piece I picked up on in here had to do with the one subject that you found annoying while you were there and away, and that had to do with cast. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was reading your three reasons for why you had initially felt uncomfortable really addressing that issue. I I thought it was just really indicative in a way of the fact that the world is not black and white. Everything is in colors of gray. Yeah. And shades of all. Of gray. Yeah, and, yeah. And then that happens to be your first It was that's so funny. Section, the yeah. section. I know. Yeah. I've been saying I live the gray way. Yeah. Personally. Oh, I, that's yeah. what I do. I live yeah. the gray way. Every issue. Yeah. Someone brings it up and I'm like, ah, there will be not only another side, there will be 90 other sides right. to this. Let's find out the details. Right. right. So. Let's actually not dive too much into the cast issue, because you're right, right, it's the number one thing that Americans tend to go, oh, I I know about that. And
1: the easy thing to say about it is, You know, the caste system is illegal in India, just like racism is illegal in the United States. So we've all got lots of work to do. And I think, you know, these are these are deep institutionalized systems that Mm -hmm. we have to tear down. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Seriously. And we are all, I think, working towards that. Right. Right. Let's talk. I'm going to do a quick station ID and then we're going to dive into uh, refugee situations. So, for folks who are just now joining us, my name is March Twisdale. I am the producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. Today, I'm talking with Washington State Senator and author Pramila Jayapal. And so, to give you context, if you live in the state of Washington, currently Pramila is a senator, and she represents the 37th District, so that's South Seattle, Renton, you said. And Skyway. Mm-hmm. And Skyway. Okey-doke. So That's where she currently... Is serving her constituents in the state of Washington, but Jim McDermott has announced his intention to retire. And Jim McDermott has been for almost 28 years a um, congressman mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. for the 7th district. And for many of us, we don't know what those numbers all mean, but essentially the 7th includes a larger area, obviously, which includes Fashion, most, Vashon, of, Seattle. most mm-hmm. of Seattle. Okay. Most and, of
1: Seattle, Shoreline, mm-hmm. Edmonds, Fashion. Wow. Okay. Burian White Center, Normandy Park.
0: Got it. Okie doke. We have been talking a bit about her memoir, Pilgrimage, One Woman's Return to a Changing India, because Pramila was born in India, came to the U.S. at the age of 16, has done some incredible work. She was the founder and former executive director of one of the largest immigrant advocacy organizations in the United States of America called One America. And so... I want to give a shout-out to a couple of our underwriters who make Voice of Vashon possible. Wendemir, thank you very much for your support in making our emergency alert service possible. That is just so important to the island, whether it's a ferry or an earthquake or whatever's going on. The emergency alert service is very important. Also, the hardware store has provided support for VOV. Serving great food, free Wi-Fi, and signature cocktails in an historic 121-year-old building. The hardware store is the heartbeat of Vashon Island, located at the corner of Bank and the Highway in downtown Vashon. Okie doke. So thanks to our underwriters. And now the realities of refugee situations, what most Americans really don't get about refugee situations. And um, what's your experience in this area?
1: Well, this is the work that I did for 15 years as the founder and former executive director of One America. We worked with immigrants and refugees, but I also, before that, had worked myself in refugee camps along the borders of Laos and Cambodia on the Thai side. And what I think everybody has to understand is that migration is a global issue. Mm-hmm. There's, there are a billion people that are on the move today, migrating from one country to another. And 213 million people live in a country other than the one in which they were born. Right. So, um, and the largest share of those actually are here in the United States. But for So a refugees, billion, that's
0: one out of every eight people on planet Earth right now is...
1: Is migrating. Moving somewhere is for moving a reason. Moving somewhere else. Yeah. And what has happened on the refugee side is we have systematically. Even as these numbers have been going up, governments have systematically been erecting walls Mm -hmm. and borders and boundaries, making it harder for people to move and disinvesting in refugee camps and services for Mm -hmm. people who are caught by war or, you know, economic famine, poverty, all of those things. And so if you look at, for example, the Syrian refugee crisis, part of what has happened there is that as the war broke out... As people started to leave Syria because they saw no hope left because mm-hmm. their family members were dying and being killed, huge numbers of people leaving. The refugee camps were not staffed to keep people. And countries were closing their doors. So, you know, the United States was taking 5,000 people. That was it. President Obama advocated for increasing to 10,000. But we should be accepting between 100,000 and 150,000 of these Syrian refugees, particularly when you look at our economic conditions and our land. Germany, Angela Merkel has been Mm -hmm. very good about accepting refugees into Germany, but the crisis is enormous, and now what is happening is on top of everything else, religion is being factored in, you know, part of the world that you come from is being factored in, Mm -hmm. and so the Syrian refugees many of whom are Muslim, many of whom come from Syria and the Middle East. Right. And so all of a sudden, this country, for example, some people in this country were saying, we don't want them here because mm-hmm. and we're letting in terrorists. And right. so that's part of what started to happen after 9-11 is people t- started to be screened out based on religion, based on country of origin. And that Mm -hmm. has been a real crisis because, of course, some of these places that people are coming from are horrendous places that don't have much democracy, that do have dictators. Mm -hmm. And that is precisely why people are leaving. So, you know, when you look at the refugee crisis, you also have to look at the fact that the United States spends a tiny fraction of its entire budget on foreign aid and development of Mm -hmm. any kind. Most Americans think that we spend too much on foreign aid, and that's because they think that we are spending anywhere between 10 and 20% of our overall budget, mm-hmm. when in fact the number is less than 1%. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. you know, we spend a tiny amount on development, and we don't do anything to help these countries actually be able to improve the situation for their people and in fact our foreign policy and our trade policy has in many cases led to economic disaster and war in some right. of these some of these other well, countries Well and there was
0: two years I think prior to things turning hostile so much in Syria there was an extreme drought so right now we have the effects of climate change are a big part of a lot of the immigrant in, in, absolutely. situations. I mean, some, you know, if you can't some, live there anymore, it, you got to move. That's
1: right. In some places, though, I'll say that Arab Spring was, it certainly was on the heels of a big drought, but mm-hmm. that is about decades of yeah. repression. Right. I mean, it really well, I'm is I'm not saying about, all of it. Yeah. yeah. But you're you are right. These things kind of go together, you know, that that drought, famine. I mean, you look at why did the Irish <laughs> migrate to the United States, right. right? It was the potato famine. Right. And, so there are a lot of reasons why people move, but the reality is that this is a global situation. It's a global crisis. It's going to require a global solution, right. and it's going to require us to really open up our hearts and our minds to remember that the United States is peopled by those who fled other countries. Other right. than our Native American brothers and sisters, everybody is an immigrant here, forced or not. Some brought over on slave ships, but mm-hmm. others who came over, to escape um, terrible conditions in their own country. And I think we just have to remember that that's how we were built. That Mm -hmm. is a core value, and that should require us to open our borders up to some of these refugees who are fleeing.
0: We've got to understand that we are being fed this information for a purpose, and it is not for our benefit.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, after 9-11, when I started what was called Hate Free Zone, then became One America, Mm -hmm. I always used to say that... Fear and patriotism together are the best way to suppress dissent. And that is just, you see it all the time. People were not allowed to stand up and say anything against the Bush administration and John Ashcroft. We stood up and sued the federal government around the deportation of 5,000 Somalis, and we won. Mm -hmm. But the fact that we were standing up and criticizing the government for civil liberties abuses that were unconstitutional against the American Constitution was seen as... You can't do that because we're in this us versus them environment that Ashcroft and Bush had sort of laid out for us. So, you know, and and that was what the corporate media honed to. I mean, they they hewed to that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Which is, you know. It was places
1: like Democracy Now! and others that are, you know, more independent stations like yours and shows like yours that are trying to point out the hypocrisies of some of what we get fed in the corporate media.
2: Oh,
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I encourage everyone out there, take a subject you know well, just and make sure it's a politicized subject. Take something you know really, really well that you personally have researched for years and go look at 30 articles you can pull up about that. Because you know it so well, you're going to see that these articles are usually 90 to 95% inaccurate, biased, um, one-sided, and manipulative. And then, because I was 17 when I discovered this, and I was involved in politics in California, and there were some initiatives that I sat down and read all four and a half pages of fine print. Mm -hmm. I knew them in and out. I spent a good year working on them, and I found that everything I read in the newspaper about these environmental issues was basically wrong. And I said to myself, well, wait a minute. On these other subjects that I don't know very well, why would I believe that those articles are accurate? Right. So everyone just test yourself. Take yeah, something you know a lot right. about, check it out, and when you go, "Oh, well that's inaccurate," realize what you don't know about yeah. is probably inaccurate exactly. too, you know? Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, <laughs> ah, we're running out of time. I need to have you back on the show.
1: <laughs> well, there's a lot to talk about. You you raise a lot of wonderful wonderful issues. Thank you so much for All your activism and your writing and your advocacy, it's really, really important.
0: I, you know, I'm super happy to be doing this. Very lucky. And um, so what I want to make sure is that everyone who's listening today can catch up with you and get more information. So the name. So first of all, I've been interviewing Pramila Jayapal on prose, poetry and purpose. My name is March Twisdale. I'm the producer and host of this awesome show that Voice of Ashon allows me to make here in their lovely studio. And let's see here. So. This is the show where my guest writers share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader, one listener, and in this case, one legislative decision (laughs) at a time. If you are curious to learn more about Pramila's inclusive work currently as a Washington state senator, how would they reach you specifically as a state senator right now?
1: You can go to the legislative website um, at the Washington State Legislature (laughs) and you just type in my name, Pramila Jayapal. Um, and you can find me there and if you want to learn more about my run for Congress yep um, then you can go to www.pramillaforcongress.com and it's okay
0: Pramilla for Congress and it's spelled p r a m i l a Pramilla for that's F O R right congress.com right okay what I love love about your um, campaign website is that, there's a teeny tiny little square up in the far right hand corner that says donate. <laughs> but right below the picture of you is this big button that says get involved. Yes. And it just seems to me you are offering endlessly, through everything you've done in your life, an invitation to other people in the world to step up and build a future.
1: Absolutely. This campaign, I always say this, is not about electing me. It's about electing all of us. This is about a movement to really bring forth a democracy that speaks for everybody and that is about justice. And so it's its an honor. I've been endorsed by... Every single labor union that's endorsed so far, every Yay. single women's group that's endorsed so far, Bernie Sanders has right. endorsed. Me. I saw you at Key Arena. Yes, I got to speak at Key Arena in front of sixteen thousand people. It was a rousing um, so you got the whole audience I excited. I did, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was uh it was not hard. Our platforms are very similar. But yeah. really what it's all about is that really believing that the people of the United States The voters of the United States have the ability to make sure government works for all of us and that if we elect people from the movement, which is what I consider myself to be from the movement for justice, then we will have a government that really responds and is accountable to the people of the United States.
0: Yeah. Um, What is that? America... By the people, people of the people, people and for the people.
2: people.
1: There we go. (laughs)
0: Yay! All right, folks. Thanks so much for listening today. And, of course, if you came in late and you want to catch the beginning of the show... You can hear Prose, Poetry, and Purpose at 11 a.m. on Saturdays and Sundays at 101.9 FM. But you can also catch us 24-7 online at www.voiceofvashon.org. Go to the show section, drop down to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. There you go. And now I'm going to leave everyone with the inspirational and timely song, We Are the Many, created by musical activist Makana.
2: Come here and gather around the stage The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty the bureaucrats guffaw and until they are purged we won't withdraw we'll occupy the streets we'll occupy the courts we'll occupy the offices of you till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Our nation was built upon the right Of every person to improve their plight The laws of this republic they rewrite and now a you own everything in sight They own it free of liability They own but they are not like you and me Their influence dictates legality And until they are stop, we are not free We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices The view Till you do The bidding of the many Not the few You enforce your monopolies With guns While sacrificing our daughters and sons But certain things belong to everyone Your fury has left the people none So take heed of our notice to redress We have little to lose, we must confess Your empty words who leave us unimpressed A growing number join us in protest We occupy the streets We occupy the courts We occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few You can't divide us into sides. And from our gaze, you cannot hide. Denial serves to amplify. And our allegiance, you can't buy. Our government is not for sale. The banks do not deserve a bail We will not reward those who fail We will not move till we prevail We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices the of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices, the view Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few We are the many all the few